Matthew 18, we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 35 this morning. And again, what's the context of this passage? Again, this is, remember, where the disciples are asking one another, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And so we're going through multiple stages of God really kind of developing their character kind of one step at a time. And he's taking them through um, the temptation to sin, the parable of the lost sheep. Then you also deal with how do you deal with a brother who sins against you? And so that's where we get our understanding of how we do church discipline. And so this has been a progression, and now we find ourselves at a place in the passage where Jesus is dealing um, ultimately with a question that is started by Peter. And so that's where we begin this morning at verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payments to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I've had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father who will do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from the heart, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, as we come to you, this is your word. And so, Father, we need the Holy Spirit to bring it and develop it and to cause us to understand what it is exactly that you're trying to teach, whether it's from the question, whether it's from the parable, or Lord, maybe we need to fix some relationships today and forgive from our hearts. So, Father, you move, you heal. And you drive us back to Christ, to the foot of the cross. And Lord, may we always be reminded of how many sins we've been forgiven so that we might forgive others. So teach us today. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as we begin to unpack this passage, the first thing we're going to see is there's a question about forgiveness. Now again, God's developing a character issue one step at a time. Now, why is he doing that? Why is he developing us to become and have a godly character? Well, the first thing is, is that sin is a big deal. Sin's a big deal. See, we are called to have an upright conduct. 
And so our sin needs to be dealt with. And again, we live in a day and age where sin, either we don't even talk about sin, we don't deal with sin, or we make sin just kind of like, well, these are just character traits, or these are just minor issues. And so we don't get at the core, and we don't reminded that sin in and of itself is the thing that drove Christ to the cross. It had to be dealt with, and it had to be dealt with underneath discipline. And so discipline is where we deal with a, a couple of things. One, we deal with the sin quickly and it's kept as private as possible. So underneath this, we have to deal with it quickly. And I've used this illustration before, but a lot of times sin, if we don't, um, if we have cereal and you have uh, raisin bran or you had any kind of flakes or something like that, um, if you leave that in the bowl and you let it to go all day long and you let it dry, that stuff becomes hard as concrete. And that's usually what happens with our sin. When we don't confess our sin quickly, when we don't wipe out the bowl quickly, what happens is sin begins to calcify in our hearts. We begin to become numb to it. It doesn't matter to us anymore. It's just part of who we are. But God's telling us we need to deal with our sins quickly. We need to go and confess our sins. We need to repent and come back to Christ. But when we do that, it also means that we're supposed to be keep it as private as possible. That's how you deal with a brother who sins against you. You go to him privately. And you ask and you deal with that sin. And then if he doesn't listen to you, then you go with, two, you go with another witness. If they don't listen to you, then you go to the church. But everything is dealt with privately because, again, um, we're not defined by our sin. But yet that's what happens in many churches. Oh, well, that's the divorced couple. Oh, that's the, um, the couple who lost his, his wife. And it's so sad. And so what happens is that becomes everything that we deal with that person. Hey, how are you doing? Hey, what's going on? How are you dealing with this issue? Well, a lot of times we also define people by their sin. Oh, that's that person. Oh, that's that person. But God's saying that we're supposed to deal with it as privately as possible. So if it's only dealt with with two people, then only two people should know. If it's a public sin, then the whole church should know. So we're dealing with sin quickly. We're also trying to keep it as private. But why? Because there needs to be a restoration. The whole purpose is done by the gospel message. We don't do church discipline because we like church discipline. The whole point is for the um, the for Christ, the peace of the church, but the restoration of the sinner. That's the whole thing is we want, if we're going to someone and we're asking hard questions or we're con uh, confronting their sin, the point is for them to repent and to come back to Christ. It's what Nathan did to David. Remember, and he told the story, Hey, there's a man who had one sheep and a man who had all these sheep. And then he finally got to the point of saying, David, you're that man. And David repented and wrote one of the most um, re uh, wonderful psalms that we read, Psalm 51. And so there's a restoration that comes about, and that's our seeking. But there is, if we're honest, a point where we say, sort of like where Peter is, enough is enough, isn't it? I mean, there's always going to be a people who abuse forgiveness, so remember, Peter's foreseeing this. He's just been told by Jesus, this is how you go and, and deal with people who sin against you. So he's like, hey, I know that there are people who are going to be sinning against me. So if those people are sinning against me, how many times am I supposed to forgive them? 
This is where we start running into people who go, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. It's people who say statements like this, oh, well, that's just who I am. No, our sins begin to affect each other. Now, what happens is Peter begins to ask this question of Jesus. He says, okay, if I'm going to be sinned against, then how many times do I say I forgive them before I say enough is enough? I'm not going to forgive you anymore. You've you've crossed the line. Now, the understanding at this point where rabbis were teaching it, if you forgave someone three times, that was good enough. So what Peter's doing is it's miraculous. I mean, he doubles it plus one. Hey, Jesus, I I get it. I I need to be better than the rabbis. I need to be better than the self-righteous. So here's what I need to do. So if I forgive someone seven times for their sin, then can I go, hey, that's enough. I've learned my lesson. There's no more forgiveness. I've reached my limit. And Jesus answers them that he's supposed to have unwarranted forgiveness. Now, the number there, we don't know if it's 70 plus 7 or 70 times 7. It's a little unclear. But both numbers are supposed to get us to the place of infinity. Jesus is saying to Peter, quit counting. Why are you counting? See, we are called to have no limit on our forgiveness. It should be a way of life for us, for those who call themselves Christians. The question for us is, is that true? So then Jesus switches and he begins to teach Peter and those around him a parable on forgiveness. And so he starts by talking about the insurmountable debt Now, one of the things that we have to realize is that payment is coming due. There is going to be a day of accountability. And so he says, this is what the kingdom is like. And the king's going to call for accounts to be um, settled. And so they bring in this man and he was a man of great, probably great wealth because he was able to borrow an incredible amount of money. Because what he does is he has encountered so much debt. Now, again, if you go out there and look, when people try to put it to equivalents, some people put it in the million, some people put it at six billion or more. The point of the story is there's insurmountable debt that this man has gotten into. He can never repay it. Never. And yet what he does is in this insurmountable debt, what he does is he begins to plead for mercy. And he asked specifically, he's, um, hey, can I have more time? Now, again, we understand people who get here, right? These are the people that go, it's not personal, it's just business. It's very personal. And this person has put so much debt into his life that the king is now ready to sell him, his wife, his children, and all of his possessions to start making payments. This man really has no chance of ever getting out of prison. Never. And so what he does is he begins to beg for this. Now listen, he's not begging for um, remission. He's not begging for forgiveness. He's begging for time. Hey, just give me more time and I can guarantee you that I will come up with enough money to pay you back. But it says that it was the king... It's the king who is moved to an acquittal. 
He's moved with compassion for the man. It's the king's actions. Has nothing to do with the man himself. It's the king's action. And he does something that, again, is extraordinary. He forgives the debt. So he takes, I mean, wouldn't that be nice? You owe taxes to the government. You owe multiple taxes. And you still owe taxes on uh, your house and cars or whatever. And someone comes in and goes, you know what? I'm going to write a a clean slate. You're going to get to start completely over. Ground zero. I would love that. Yeah, man. So how does he respond to this great mercy? Well, what does he do? He goes out and finds someone who owes money. Now, again, this could be a natural thing. I mean, he's so um, into debt that he's like, well, now I need to start collecting on some of my stuff. He could have been a money lender handing stuff out. So he finds someone who owes. And so he says, hey, your payment's due. Sounds familiar. Your payment's due to me. But here's the difference as he's selling this account. The payment that's due is a, a pittance. Now, it's still significant. It's still a few months' salary. So it's like when they tell you, when they use this line on you, when you're going, men, to go buy your engagement ring. Oh, it needs to be three months' salary. Who came up with that? That's a lot of money. Oh, you got to pay it. So maybe this man went out and he got a ring. So he owes about two to three months' salary to this man. As compared to the insurmountable debt. The millions to billions of dollars in debt. And so this man says, he begins to plead, again, exactly what the other man did. He pleads not for mercy, he pleads for time. Give me time and I will pay you back. And this man who just had been forgiven this insurmountable debt says no. And he throws him into prison. Now, one of the things that you need to recognize is that this is lawful. He's allowed to do this. He's well within his rights to do what he's doing. Now, let me put this in perspective, though. We want the law for other people, just not for ourselves. Let me give you a real life example. When I'm driving on the highway, I might have a tendency to speed a little bit more than the posted speed limit. Now, I guarantee you or at least I think that the police give us at least five miles over. So you're not really speeding at that point, right? Well, but what if I'm going eight to 10 miles an hour over? Now, what I get upset back is the people, as I'm going eight to 10 miles over, are whipping past me. So they're going 20 plus miles over the speed limit. So what do I do? I hope the police get them. I hope they blow right by a police officer right now. I hope there's a police officer off to the side. I hope someone's running radar because they need to be got. Because that's that's unacceptable. My speeding, I'm within the realms of a nice, normal person. That's psychotic. That's dangerous speeding. Mine's under control. What is speeding? One mile over. So if I get caught for my even five miles over the speed limit, what do I want the officer to give me? Mercy. Officer. Now, if you have an old vehicle, you can still use this excuse. If you got a new one, you can't. 
because they post the speed limit on your little odometer now. I don't like it. Because originally it was, I didn't know what the speed limit was, your officer. Well, didn't you see it posted back there? Well, I mean, how far does that go? And I was only five miles over. Do you not know the guy that was going 25 miles over the speed? Why couldn't you catch him? I'm going to write you a ticket. That's not fair. See, that's sort of what the rich man is doing as an unforgiven servant. When it's convenient to him, he wants to uphold the law. And he wants the law to work for himself. But when it comes upon him, he wants mercy. So before we throw rocks at him, start asking yourself the questions, what is it that we want mercy for ourselves, we, we don't give it to other people? How many of us have come in here and said, well, well nobody, nobody talks to me. Nobody, nobody cares about me. Flip it around. Who are you talking to? Who are you inviting? Well, people didn't come to this. I, I invited some people to this event and not a lot of people came. Who are you inviting? Now again, this isn't to beat any of us up. But if all of us are asking the question of who, who do I need to do ministry to? Who can I invite over? Who can, whose lives can I be a part of? If we're all asking that question then nobody can say things like, well, nobody invited me. So how do you do that? Look around you. If there's someone you don't know, go talk to them. Invite them to lunch. Have them to your house. Come to the women's time and have coffee and conversation. Men, I understand this. I don't have a problem going out fishing and not talking to somebody next to me and having a great day. And ladies, that can happen with men. It's okay. Don't force them to talk to each other. It will happen. But we need to be a part of ministry to one another. And again, all of you should be able to do like me. I can sit here and I can start going by family, by family, by family and tell you if they are someone who's a regular tender, I can tell you who they are and what they're going through in their life. But that's not... Because that's my job. That's the ministry we're all called to. And so we need to make sure that we're living out what we're learning. Now, this causes great distress for the people around because there's a bigger issue than just the money issue. And the bigger issue is this. This is what grieved the fellow servants is that he wasn't merciful. He was unforgiving. R.C. Sproul says this, when hard-heartedness should grieve all of us who love and value mercy and grace. It should make us all distraught when we see injustice around us. And so it was going around, and so what does it do? They, they gets back to the king. And I don't know how the fellow servants, I don't know if they went and in our language or whatever, went and tattled on the person and said, hey, king, do you know what just happened? Or if they just start talking about it. And somehow it gets back to the king. 
of what happens. And so the king actually goes and he gets the servant that he had forgiven the debt. And he calls them in and he calls them this very specifically. You wicked servant. You wicked servant. Why did you not give mercy as I gave you mercy? When you came in and you begged to me and you begged for more time, I didn't give you just more time. I went and I acquitted all your debt. I forgave all of it. Now, how dare you go out and not do the same? And so he tells the parable so that we might learn mercy. And then he ends with this sentence. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. See, that's the applications. It has to be forgiveness from the heart. See, there, there can be a depth of God's mercy and compassion. That's what the parable is about. So we need to make sure, again, that we understand mercy and grace. Mercy is this, not getting what we deserve, but grace is, giving, is getting what we do not deserve. God gives us both. He gives us both mercy and he gives us grace, but he doesn't put a limit upon it. It's infinite. Now, do the math for yourself. Take however many years that you're up and and let's just be nice to each other and just say, if you performed one sin a day, just one, how many sins has God had to forgive you? One. How much more is his infinite love and mercy and grace to us? And there's also another thing about God. He's the initiator in reconciliation. It's the example for us. See, it's it's too easy to say, well, if they come and talk to me, I'll forgive them. And also this, stop having conversations with people in your head. That don't really happen. I know how they're going to respond. Really? Maybe we need to be the initiators to go and to say, hey, we need to talk. This is my perspective. This is my take on what's going on. See, when we begin to do that, then we have the opportunity to show a willingness to forgive. And listen, this is, according to the scripture, is an essential mark of saving grace. So if you are unforgiving of other people, then what the Bible is telling us pretty clearly is then you don't understand grace and you're probably not a Christian. If there is someone that you look at and are so perturbed at, so angry at, so hateful towards, then you don't understand grace and mercy from Christ. But pastor, you don't understand. You're right, I don't, but he does. I didn't say it, he did. And he's telling us very clearly that we're supposed to have a transformed heart. That we have to be willing, listen, willing to forgive others. And that sometimes that's easy. Well, yeah, if, if, if I get the opportunity to talk to them, I'm going to be willing to forgive them. But what about the time or the opportunity to have forgiveness like the Father? 
See, um, there's a story by Corey Tim Boom, and I went to check it out because um, I've heard it many times before, and it's talking about Corey Tim Boom, and uh, she was given a talk in Munich after the war, after the Second World War, and obviously for those who do know the history, Corey Tim Boom and her sister were put into the concentration camp for um, bringing Jewish people into their home and hiding them. And there was a man in this talk that she gave in Munich um, this one time who was one of the prison guards. And so the prison guard comes up after the meeting, comes up to Corey Ten Boom, and Corey is freaking out because she remembers the guard because this is the guard where they had to go when they were in the middle of the room and they had to take off their dresses and walk naked before this man. And then her sister died in that prison guarded by that man. And she's just like, I'm sure this man doesn't remember me, but she remembered him. And he didn't. He didn't remember who she was, but he had become a Christian after the war. And his question to her was, Fraulein, I know that I'm forgiven by God, but I want to hear it from you. Do you forgive me? And it said that she, everything came rushing back and she said, I knew it was not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I'd come home to Holland for victims of Nazi brutalities. And this is what she says. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. But those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. So she said, and still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much, but you need to supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arms, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. Now, that in and of itself is a pretty cool story. But she goes on. I'd never read this part of the story. She said, I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed for me from then on but they didn't. And so what she does is she begins to recall a time when some Christian friends whom she loved and trusted did something which hurt her. And she found herself struggling to forgive again. And she was overwhelmed because she was just like, these are my friends. I forgave the guard in the concentration camp. Why can't I forgive these friends? And what happened is she said that she forgave, but then it kept going through her mind, kept going through her mind, kept going through her mind. And she said, uh, she ended up talking to a Lutheran pastor who said this. He said, up in the church tower is a bell which is rung by pulling on a rope. But you know what? After the sexton lets go the rope, the bell keeps on swinging. First ding, then dong, slower and slower until there's a final dong and it stops. And he said, I believe the same thing is true of forgiveness. When we forgive someone, we take our hand off the rope. But if we've been tugging at our grievances for a long time, we mustn't be surprised if the old angry thoughts keep coming for a while. They're just the dings and the dongs of the old bell that's slowing down. So he tells her, she gets that. 
But then she has a friend. She continues to learn more. And she has a friend that comes over. And those friends are in the house as the friend is there. And they're about to leave. And and the friend goes, are those the people that you talked about? And she said, yes, those are the friends that I talked about. And she goes, isn't that so nice that we're all together because I have forgiven them? And And the friend said, but have they forgiven you? And she says, oh, listen, they said that there's nothing forgive. They denied it ever happened. But listen to how she responds, but I can prove it. And she went eagerly to her desk because she has it in black and white. I've saved all their letters and I can show you how they've hurt me. And the friend said this, aren't you the ones whose sins are at the bottom of the sea? So why are the sins of your friends etched in black and white? And she said that night she had to take all the letters and throw them in the fire. Then she says this, when we bring our sins to Jesus, he not only forgives them, he makes them as if they have never been. That's the story of the parable. That's what it means to forgive from the heart. So I I don't care what has happened to you or how bad of a sin it can be forgiven. It can be forgiven. And if we do that, I'm telling you, people will notice the difference. And so here's the takeaway. Accounts are coming due. And the question is, are we going to be like the forgiving king? Or are we going to be the unforgiving servant asking for repayment for the sins that have been done against us? And I know there are people in this room who have deep, deep wounds. And God is faithful. And as he's forgiven you, he tells us very clearly, now go and forgive as I have forgiven. Again, I don't know. Pastor, you don't know the hurt. You're right, but God does. And he says, as I have forgiven, now go and forgive. So take some inventory Maybe you need to go back to that place where you keep a ledger of everybody's sins against you. And maybe you need to rip those pages out and burn them. Maybe you need to write in there, Jesus paid in full. But forgive from your heart as Christ forgave. If we do that, we begin to understand mercy and grace just a little bit more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, easy to say, hard to do. And I, Lord, I know that there are people who have been abused, whether physically, emotionally, spiritually, people who've had grievous sins against them. Or maybe, Lord, there are people in here who've caused the grievous sin. 
and have just not been able to forgive themselves. Father, you take every sin to the cross. And you pay the payment. And then the incredible thing that you tell us is you remember it no more. May we be like the Father. That we would remember the sins no more. The sins committed against us and the sins that we have committed. May we be slow Slow to pass judgment, quick to forgive, quick to offer mercy and grace. Because that's what our Father does. It's what He calls us to do. So, Lord, may we be found faithful in fulfilling the call to do the work that You've given us to do. And, Lord, may we be more like Jesus because of it. For this we pray in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen.